Section 17 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Jurisprudence by John Salmon. Section 17. Chapter 11. The Kinds of Legal Rights. Part 2. Section 82. Proprietary and Personal Rights. Another important distinction is that between proprietary and personal rights. The aggregate of a man's proprietary rights constitutes his estate, his assets, or his property in one of the many senses of that most equivocal of legal terms. German jurisprudence is superior to our own in possessing a distinct technical term for this aggregate of proprietary rights, namely Vermögen, the rights themselves being Vermögensrecht. The French speak in the same fashion of avoir or patrimoine. The sum total of a man's personal rights, on the other hand, constitutes his status or personal condition, as opposed to his estate. If he owns land, or chattels, or patent rights, or the goodwill of a business, or shares in a company, or if debts are owing to him, all these rights pertain to his estate. But if he is a free man and a citizen, a husband and a father, the rights which he has as such pertain to his status or standing in the law. What, then, is the essential nature of this distinction? It lies in the fact that proprietary rights are valuable and personal rights are not. The former are those which are worth money, the latter are those that are worth none. The former are the elements of a man's wealth, the latter are merely elements in his well-being. The former possess not merely juridical, but also economic significance, while the latter possess juridical significance only. It makes no difference in this respect whether a right is use in rem or use in personam. Rights of either sort are proprietary and make up the estate of the possessor if they are of economic value. Thus, my right to the money in my pocket is proprietary, but not less so is my right to the money which I have in the bank. Stock in the funds is part of a man's estate just as much as land and houses, and a valuable contract just as much as a valuable chattel. On the other hand, a man's rights of personal liberty and of reputation and of freedom from bodily harm are personal, not proprietary. They concern his welfare, not his wealth. They are juridical merely, not also economic. So also with the rights of a husband and father with respect to his wife and children. Rights such as these constitute his legal status, not his legal estate. If we go outside the sphere of private into that of public law, we find the list of personal rights greatly increased. Citizenship, honors, dignities, and official position in all its innumerable forms pertain to the law of status, not to that of property. With respect to the distinction between proprietary and personal rights, estate, and status, there are the following supplementary observations to be made. 1. The distinction is not confined to rights in the strict sense, but is equally applicable to other classes of rights also. A person's estate is made up not merely of his valuable claims against other persons, but of such of his powers and liberties as are either valuable in themselves 
or are accessory to other rights which are valuable. A landlord's right of re-entry is proprietary, no less than his ownership of the land, and a mortgagee's right of sale, no less than the debt secured. A general power of appointment is proprietary, but the power of making a will or a contract is personal. 2. The distinction between personal and proprietary rights has its counterpart in that between personal and proprietary duties and liabilities. The latter are those which relate to a person's estate and diminish the value of it. They represent a loss of money, just as a proprietary right represents the acquisition of it. All others are personal. A liability to be sued for a debt is proprietary, but a liability to be prosecuted for a crime is personal. The duty of fulfilling a contract for the purchase of goods is proprietary, but the duty of fulfilling a contract to marry is personal. 3. Although the term estate includes only rights in the generic sense, the term status includes not only rights, but also duties, liabilities, and disabilities. A minor's contractual disabilities are part of his status, though a man's debts are not part of his estate. Status is the sum of one's personal duties, liabilities, and disabilities, as well as of one's personal rights. 4. A person's status is made up of smaller groups of personal rights, duties, liabilities, and disabilities, and each of these constituent groups is itself called a status. Thus, the same person may have at the same time the status of a free man, of a citizen, of a husband, of a father, and so on. So we speak of the status of a wife, meaning all the personal benefits and burdens of which marriage is the legal source and title in a woman. In the same way, we speak of the status of an alien, a lunatic, or an infant. 5. It may be thought that proprietary rights should be defined as those which are transferable, rather than as those which are valuable. As to this, it seems clear that all transferable rights are also proprietary, for if they can be transferred, they can be sold, and are therefore worth money. But it is not equally true that all proprietary rights are transferable. Popular speech does not, and legal theory need not, deny the name of property to a valuable right merely because it is not transferable. A pension may be inalienable, but it must be counted for all that as wealth or property. Debts were originally incapable of assignment but even then they were elements of the creditor's estate. A married woman may be unable to alienate her estate, but it is an estate nonetheless. The true test of a proprietary right is not whether it can be alienated, but whether it is equivalent to money, and it may be equivalent to money, though it cannot be sold for a price. A right to receive money, or something which can itself be turned into money, is a proprietary right, and is to be reckoned in the possessor's estate, even though inalienable. 6. It is an unfortunate circumstance that the term status is used in a considerable variety of different senses. Of these, we may distinguish the following. a. Legal condition of any kind, whether personal or proprietary. This is the most comprehensive use of the term. A man's status in this sense includes his whole position in the law, the sum total of his legal rights, duties, liabilities, or other legal relations, whether proprietary or personal, 
or any particular group of them separately considered. Thus, we may speak of the status of a landowner, of a trustee, of an executor, of a solicitor, and so on. It is much more common, however, to confine the term in question to some particular description of legal condition, some particular kind of status in this wide sense, hence the other and specific meanings of the term. b. Personal legal condition. That is to say, a man's legal condition, only so far as his personal rights and burdens are concerned, to the exclusion of his proprietary relations. It is in this sense that we have hitherto used the term. Thus, we speak of the status of an infant, of a married woman, of a father, of a public official, or of a citizen, but not of a landowner or of a trustee. C. Personal capacities and incapacities, as opposed to the other elements of personal status. By certain writers, the term status is applied not to the whole sphere of personal condition, but only to one part of it, namely that which relates to personal capacity and incapacity. The law of status in this sense would include the rules as to the contractual capacities and incapacities of married women, but not the personal rights and duties existing between her and her husband. So it would include the law as to infants' contracts, but not the law as to the mutual rights of parent and child. This law of status, in the sense of personal capacity, is considered as a special branch of the law, introductory to the main body of legal doctrine, on the ground that a knowledge of the different capacities of different classes of persons to acquire rights and to enter into legal relations is presupposed in the exposition of those rights and legal relations themselves. It cannot be doubted that there are certain rules which so permeate the law that it is necessary in any well-arranged system to dispose of them once for all in a preliminary portion of the code, instead of constantly repeating them in connection with every department of the law in which they are relevant. But it may be doubted whether the rules of personal capacity belong to this category. Surely the contractual capacity of a minor is best dealt with in the law of contracts, his capacity to commit a tort in the law of tort his capacity to commit a crime in the criminal law, his capacity to marry in the law of marriage. Moreover, even if personal capacity is a suitable subject for separate and introductory treatment in the law, there seems little justification for confining the term status to this particular branch of personal condition. D. Compulsory as opposed to conventional personal condition. Status is used by some writers to signify a man's personal legal condition, so far only as it is imposed upon him by the law, without his own consent, as opposed to the condition which he has acquired for himself by agreement. The position of a slave is a matter of status. The position of a free servant is a matter of contract. Marriage creates a status in this sense, for although it is entered into by way of consent, it cannot be dissolved in that way, and the legal condition created by it is determined by the law and cannot be modified by the agreement of the parties. A business partnership, on the other hand, pertains to the law of contract and not to that of status. 7. The Law of Persons and the Law of Things Certain of the Roman lawyers, for example Gaius, divided the whole of the substantive law into two parts, which they distinguished as 
use quod ad personis pertinet and use quod ad res pertinet terms which are commonly translated as the law of persons and the law of things there has been much discussion as to the precise significance of this distinction and it is possible that it was based on no clear and consistent logical analysis at all any adequate investigation of the matter would here be out of place but it is suggested that the true basis of the division is the distinction between personal and proprietary rights between status and property the use quod ad res pertinet is the law of property the law of proprietary rights the use quod ad personas pertinet is the law of status the law of personal rights so far as such rights require separate consideration instead of being dealt with in connection with those portions of the law of property to which they are immediately related section eighty three rights in re propria and rights in re aliena rights may be divided into two kinds distinguished by the civilians as jura in re propria and jura in re aliena the latter may also be conveniently termed encumbrances if we use that term in its widest permissible sense a right in re aliena or encumbrance is one which limits or derogates from some more general right belonging to some other person in respect of the same subject matter all others are jura in re propria it frequently happens that a right vested in one person becomes subject or subordinate to an adverse right vested in another it no longer possesses its full scope or normal compass part of it being cut off to make room for the limiting and superior right which thus derogates from it thus the right of a landowner may be subject to and limited by that of a tenant to the temporary use of the property or to the right of a mortgagee to sell or take possession or to the right of a neighboring landowner to the use of a way or other easement or to the right of the vendor of land in respect of restrictive covenants entered into by the purchaser as to the use of it for example a covenant not to build upon it a right subject to an encumbrance may be conveniently designated as servient while the encumbrance which derogates from it may be contrasted as dominant these expressions are derived from and conform to roman usage in the matter of servitudes the general and subordinate right was spoken of figuratively by the roman lawyers as being in bondage to the special right which prevailed over and derogated from it the term servitus thus derived came to denote the superior right itself rather than the relation between it and the other just as obligatio came to denote the right of the creditor rather than the bond of legal subjection under which the debtor lay the terms use in re propria and use in re aliena were devised by the commentators on the civil law and are not to be found in the original sources their significance is clear the owner of a chattel has use in re propria a right over his own property the pledgee or other encumbrancer of it has use in re aliena a right over the property of someone else there is nothing to prevent one encumbrance from being itself subject to another thus a tenant may sublet that is to say he may grant a lease of his lease and so confer upon the sub lessee a use in re aliena of which the immediate subject matter is itself merely another right of the same quality 
the right of the tenant in such a case is dominant with regard to that of the landowner but servient with regard to that of the sublessee so the mortgagee of land may grant a mortgage of his mortgage that is to say he may create what is called a sub-mortgage the mortgage will then be a dominant right in respect of the ownership of the land but a servient right with respect to the sub-mortgage so the easements appurtenant to land are leased or mortgaged along with it and therefore though themselves encumbrances they are themselves encumbered such a series of rights each limiting and derogating from the one before it may in theory extend to any length a right is not to be classed as encumbered or servient merely on account of its natural limits and restrictions otherwise all rights would fall within this category since none of them are unlimited in their scope all being restrained within definite boundaries by the conflicting interests and rights of other persons all ownership of material things for example is limited by the maxim sic utere tuo ut alienum non laetus every man must so restrain himself in the use of his property as not to infringe upon the property and rights of others the law confers no property in stones sufficiently absolute and unlimited to justify their owner in throwing them through his neighbor's windows no landowner may by reason of his ownership inflict a nuisance upon the public or upon adjoining proprietors but in these and all similar cases we are dealing merely with the normal and natural boundaries of the right not with those exceptional and artificial restrictions which are due to the existence of jura in re aliena vested in other persons a servient right is not merely a limited right for all are limited it is a right so limited that its ordinary boundaries are infringed it is a right which owing to the influence of some other and superior right is prevented from attaining its normal scope and dimensions until we have first settled the natural contents and limits of a right there can be no talk of other rights which qualify and derogate from it it is essential to an encumbrance that it should in the technical language of our law run with the right encumbered by it in other words the dominant and the servient rights are necessarily concurrent by this it is meant that an encumbrance must follow the encumbered right into the hands of new owners so that a change of ownership will not free the right from the burden imposed upon it if this is not so if the right is transferable free from the burden there is no true encumbrance for the burden is then merely personal to him who is subject to it and does not in truth limit or derogate from the right itself this right still exists in its full compass since it can be transferred in its entirety to a new owner for this reason an agreement to sell land vests an encumbrance or use in re aliena in the purchaser but an agreement to sell a chattel does not the former agreement runs with the property while the latter is non-concurrent so the fee simple of land may be encumbered by negative agreements such as a covenant not to build for speaking generally such obligations will run with the land into the hands of successive owners but positive covenants are merely personal to the covenantor and derogate in no way from the fee simple vested in him which he can convey to another free from any such burdens concurrence however may exist in different degrees it may be more or less perfect or absolute 
the encumbrance may run with the servient right into the hands of some of the successive owners and not into the hands of others in particular encumbrances may be concurrent either in law or merely in equity in the latter case the concurrence is imperfect or partial since it does not prevail against the kind of owner known in the language of the law as a purchaser for value without notice of the dominant right examples of encumbrances running with their servient rights at law are easements leases and legal mortgages on the other hand an agreement for a lease an equitable mortgage a restrictive covenant as to the use of land and a trust will run with their respective servient rights in equity but not at law it must be carefully noted that the distinction between jura in repropria and jura in re aliena is not confined to the sphere of real rights or jura in rem personal no less than real rights may be encumbrances of other rights personal no less than real rights may be themselves encumbered a debtor for example may grant a security over the book debts owing to him in his business or over his shares in a company as well as over his stock in trade a life tenancy of money in the public funds is just as possible as a life tenancy of land there can be a lien over a man's share in a trust fund as well as over a chattel belonging to him the true test of an encumbrance is not whether the encumbrancer has a use in rem available against all the world but whether he has a right which will avail against subsequent owners of the encumbered property the chief classes of encumbrances are four in number namely leases servitudes securities and trusts in a later chapter we shall consider these at more length and in the meantime it is sufficient briefly to indicate their nature one a lease is the encumbrance of property vested in one man by a right to the possession and use of it vested in another two a servitude is a right to the limited use of a piece of land unaccompanied either by the ownership or by the possession of it for example a right of way or a right to the passage of light or water across adjoining land three a security is an encumbrance vested in a creditor over the property of his debtor for the purpose of securing the recovery of the debt a right for example to retain possession of a chattel until the debt is paid four a trust is an encumbrance in which the ownership of property is limited by an equitable obligation to deal with it for the benefit of someone else the owner of the encumbered property is the trustee the owner of the encumbrance is the beneficiary section eighty four principal and accessory rights the relation between principal and accessory rights is the reverse of that just considered as existing between servient and dominant rights for every right is capable of being affected to any extent by the existence of other rights and the influence thus exercised by one upon another is of two kinds being either adverse or beneficial it is adverse when one right is limited or qualified by another vested in a different owner this is the case already dealt with by us it is beneficial on the other hand when one right has added to it a supplementary right vested in the same owner in this case the right so augmented may be termed the principal while the one so appurtenant to it is the accessory right thus a security is accessory to the right secured a servitude is accessory to the ownership of the land for whose benefit it exists 
the rent and covenants of a lease are accessory to the landlord's ownership of the property. Covenants for title in a conveyance are accessory to the estate conveyed, and a right of action is accessory to the right for whose enforcement it is provided. A real right may be accessory to a personal, as in the case of a debt secured by a mortgage of land. A personal right may be accessory to a real, as in the case of the covenants of a lease. A real right may be accessory to a real, as in the case of servitudes appurtenant to land. And finally, a personal right may be accessory to a personal, as in the case of a debt secured by a guarantee. A right which is dominant with respect to one right is often at the same time accessory with respect to another. It limits one right and at the same time augments another. A typical example is a servitude over land. The owner of Whiteacre has a right of way over the adjoining farm Blackacre to the highway. This right of way is dominant with respect to Blackacre and accessory with respect to Whiteacre. For the burden of it goes with Blackacre and the benefit of it with Whiteacre. Blackacre is accordingly called the servient and Whiteacre the dominant tenement. So a mortgage is a dominant right with respect to the property subject to it, and an accessory right with respect to the debt secured by it. In like manner, a landlord's right to his rent is dominant with regard to the lease, but accessory with regard to the reversion. This double character, however, is not necessary or universal. A public right of way is an encumbrance of the land subject to it, but it is not accessory to any other land. So, a lease is a dominant right, which is not at the same time accessory to any principle. Section 85. Legal and Equitable Rights In a former chapter, we considered the distinction between common law and equity. We saw that these two systems of law, administered respectively in the courts of common law and the court of chancery, were to a considerable extent discordant. One of the results of this discordance was the establishment of a distinction between two classes of rights, distinguishable as legal and equitable. Legal rights are those which were recognized by the courts of common law. Equitable rights, otherwise called equities, are those which were recognized solely in the court of chancery. Notwithstanding the fusion of law and equity by the Judicature Act 1873, this distinction still exists and must be reckoned with as an inherent part of our legal system. That which would have been merely an equitable right before the Judicature Act is merely an equitable right still. Inasmuch as all rights, whether legal or equitable, now obtain legal recognition in all courts, it may be suggested that the distinction is now of no importance. This is not so, however, for in two respects at least, these two classes of rights differ in their practical effects. 1. The methods of their creation and disposition are different. A legal mortgage of land must be created by deed, but an equitable mortgage may be created by a written agreement or by a mere deposit of title deeds. A similar distinction exists between a legal and an equitable lease, a legal and an equitable servitude, a legal and an equitable charge on land, and so on. 2. Equitable rights have a more precarious existence than legal rights. Where there are two inconsistent legal rights claimed adversely by different persons over the same thing, the first in time prevails. Qui prior est tempore potior est jura. 
A similar rule applies to the competition of two inconsistent equitable rights. But when a legal and an equitable right conflict, the legal will prevail over and destroy the equitable, even though subsequent to it in origin, provided that the owner of the legal right acquired it for value and without notice of the prior equity. As between a prior equitable mortgage, for example, and a subsequent legal mortgage, preference will be given to the latter. The maxim is, where there are equal equities, the law will prevail. This liability to destruction by conflict with a subsequent legal right is an essential feature and a characteristic defect of all rights which are merely equitable. Summary 1. Rights Perfect, enforceable by law Imperfect, recognized by law but not enforceable The legal quality of rights against the state 2. Rights Positive Correlative to positive duties and negative wrongs Negative Correlative to negative duties and positive wrongs 3. Rights Real, in rem or in re Correlative to duties of indeterminate incidents, all negative. Personal, in personam. Correlative to duties of determinate incidents, almost all positive. Jura ad rem. Dominium and obligatio. 4. Rights. Proprietary. Constituting a person's estate or property. Personal. Constituting a person's status or personal condition. Other uses of the term status. 5. Rights, in repropria, in re aliena, servitus, encumbrance. The natural limits of rights distinguished from encumbrances. The concurrence of the encumbrance and the right encumbered. Encumbrances, either real or personal rights. Classes of encumbrances. 1. Leases. 2. Servitudes. 3. Securities. 4. Trusts. 6. Principal and accessory rights. 7. Legal and equitable rights. 8. Primary and sanctioning rights. End of section 17. Recording by Colleen McMahon.